Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is Mark Molina, CEO of Molina Leadership Solutions. We are here this afternoon on this beautiful Wednesday afternoon. The sun is out. We are continuing on with our Women in Leadership series. Today we are interviewing Danielle Thompson. She works for the Springfield Area Chamber of Commerce. She is the Economic Development Specialist. And I had a look at that on her bio because I keep saying it backwards for some reason. But I'm going to begin uh, this process by reading her bio as sent in. And then we'll read her bio, portions of her leadership journey. Then we'll get into the, the interview itself. Dan Danielle was born and raised in Eugene, Oregon. And she has spent the entirety of her life being a Duck fan, as well as a loyal Duck football attendee. She graduated from the University of Oregon with a BA in General Social Science with a concentration in Applied Economics, Business, and Society and a minor in nonprofit administration. Before starting at the Chamber as the Economic Development Specialist, she spent five years at the nonprofit organization Rural Development Initiatives as an outreach and program coordinator. She's had the pleasure of spending much of her free time volunteering as the advisor for Churchill High, Churchill High School's Kids Helping Kids program, benefiting Children's Miracle Network. And when she's not working or volunteering, she's enjoying much of her time with her husband and her dog on their property in the country, as well as for their newfound love for the game of golf and the great courses they have found in the area. Regarding her leadership journey, her, she, she writes, Well, only nearing the beginning of my leadership journey, I feel very blessed to have already had some great experiences, incredible mentors, and challenging opportunities thus far. Coming from a family of business owners, it was cemented at a young age that obtaining leadership skills was something that would be very important in my career journey. I was given my first opportunity at a leadership role in high school when I was chosen to participate in Churchill's Kids Helping Kids program, benefiting the organization Children's Miracle Network. Starting as a freshman, by the time I was a senior, I was leading a coordinating team of six and a group of 10 senior boys in order to raise $35,000 by the end of the year. From then on, I knew that the nonprofit sector was a passion of mine and continued my volunteering efforts to now, uh, to now having been given the opportunity to be the advisor for the program. Uh, Churchill High School, I apologize, I have new glasses on, so I'm struggling a little bit. Uh, leading the group of students year after year. One thing I have learned thus far is that leading high school students can pose quite a different set of challenges than leading in my work life. Along with being a participant of this year's Leadership Eugene Springfield class, I also have the incredible privilege to serve our community under an experienced, well-respected, and devoted leader, Bonnie Mickelson. With the opportunity to learn from her, I feel there is no better way to continue my education of being a leader. Uh, Danielle, welcome to Molina Leadership Solutions year-long project, Women in Leadership. Thank you for agreeing to participate Thank you for being willing to come and share your leadership story and your leadership journey. I apologize for my hesitation. These new glasses are throwing me off a little bit. Uh, tell us, how are, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. I'm just so humbled to be here. Thanks so much for inviting me. You know, you have, when I read your bio, I am amazed by every individual that has come on to share their leadership journey. But even more amazing to me are individuals like you 
who are so humble and hardworking and devoted and you stall a little bit when asked for to participate in moments such as this when you consider and you make remarks like but i'm only beginning my leadership journey you said to me and then i read your bio and you've been leading since you were a teenager and here you are in this this professional endeavor you're you're into your uh, first decade of your of your work professional work life and every year of that has been a has been in a leadership role and i'm just i'm amazed at the the depth of your involvement the depth of your commitment but more importantly the depth of your humility so thank you for that that example thank you so in interest of full disclosure we've sent danielle several questions and we're going to be go ahead and uh, be, begin that process now. Danielle, tell us something about you that's not on your bio. Well, you know, I had to think about this for a little bit because I mean, like you said, I am pretty young still. And so when you read my bio, it's like, well, it almost seems like it encompasses all of me, but I kind of just thought I'd share a little fun fact that um, we have a very close family. And when I say that, I not only mean in the sense of um, my parents live in town, one of my brothers lives in town, and then another one lives in Bend, and we all spend a lot of time with each other. But my husband also actually works for my parents, so he spends more time with them than I do. And during the pandemic, oddly enough, our neighbor came over to us and let us know that he was selling his house and asked if we had anyone interested long story short my parents have now become our next door neighbors so <laughs> we are very close geographically as well as relationally <laughs> yes you know that that's really fantastic i think it's great that your family's close and you have such a connected history to the to this area because it it's an extension of who you are philosophically it's an extension of who you are culturally and so that adds significant uh, component to your leadership journey. One of the things I found intriguing upon, after reading your bio, Danny, was what is a concentration in applied economics, business, and society? What does that mean? Yeah, it sounds a lot more intimidating than it actually is. Um, my mom always says it's good that I didn't have to pay per word for my major because it's quite a mouthful. But I essentially went to the University of Oregon thinking I would go down the general business route, do that degree. But after talking with my advisor, learned that the general social science degree actually allowed for a lot more freedom in the classes that you got to chose. So it was similar to the business route in the sense that it offered a lot of the same classes, but then also you got to choose. So you have to be a little more selective. So I got to take classes like psychology and public relations and economics and pair that with the essential business classes that were also offered with the business degree. So it's very similar to the business degree, but just kind of allowed more freedom with what I was interested in. Now, you say you've come, you come from a, ba a family of business owners. Has that influenced you, obviously, from your volunteer time in high school? I'm going to jump around a little bit, if that's all right. In your volunteer time in high school, it's obvious you have a very profound work ethic. You have a very profound uh, concept of community service and devotion to the community. 
when you went to college, your upbringing, having a family of business owners, was that your idea of, okay, I'm going to do something with respect to what I've seen my family do? You know, it wasn't really. I uh, When I went to the U of O, I knew at that point after volunteering for Children's Miracle Network in high school that nonprofit was a focus that I wanted to explore. And so that's why the my minor at the University of Oregon was in nonprofit administration. And then I got the opportunity to work at rural development initiatives while I was going to school, which was just a great way to be able to apply what I was learning. But then when this chamber opportunity opened up, you know, it was really intriguing and it kind of brought me back to the business world in a sense that I didn't know I would be right now. And so it's kind of got me a little more closer to my family roots, if you can say that. So I really thought that I would go kind of the straight traditional nonprofit organization route, but then ended up here and I wouldn't change a thing. Now, what kind of business is uh, where was your family involved in? So my um, grandfather actually owned a camera store in Springfield, Gerlach's camera store. And um, so they, they, my mom grew up in Springfield, lived there her whole life until um, she moved to Eugene. And that's where I've lived my entire life. And my dad's dad owned a um, commercial cabinet store. And so he ended up taking that over advanced cabinet designs. And so him and my mom work there. He owns that. And then my husband now works there. So. And what's the name of that company? Advanced Cabinet Designs. Now, did your parents have to go to school or did they have some OJT there learning to work within the family business? So my dad actually, they did not. I, they went to community college for a short amount of time, but my dad ended up working for Lands Cabinets, which is actually right next door geographically to my dad's shop, Advanced Cabinets. Um, they started out in Texas. And so my dad lived in Texas and worked there. He was very close with Brent Lands, who's the owner. And so he ended up, um, his father had his cabinet shop and decided to go the commercial route because Lands Cabinets does um, residential. And so they got to, they didn't have to compete with each other, but that's how he learned the cabinet business. I'm going to show my ignorance here for just a second. I did not realize until you just commented that there was a difference between residential and commercial cabinet making. Yeah. Yeah. It's very interesting. Um, you know, the residential and a lot of times they get to kind of partner up on like apartments and whatnot, but my dad gets to do like the, um, for example, jewelry stores, he does that casework and he's done a lot of work for the university of Oregon and things like that. But yeah, it's, it's a bit of a difference and it is very interesting. So then it would not be wise to assume that advanced cabinet designs is all kitchen type wood based products. No, you know, the biggest joke in my family is that my parents old house, um, people would always ask my mom if she had just wonderful cabinets. And she said it took her 15 years to get her dream kitchen because she was the last on the list to get her cabinets done. And so your husband works for your parents. Did he go to school for design or did he just OJT with on the job, on the job training with them? 
So he ended up doing, um, going to school for business as well, and then started working for a construction company. Um, and then my dad, I think, kind of wanted someone from the family to go into the business, but me and my brothers just had no interest in that. And so my husband, you know, I kind of tried to talk him out of it. And I've seen how hard my dad works and that that's a six day a week job. And I, I really wasn't sure if I wanted that. And, um, but he started working there and he just loves it. He's a project manager. And so he didn't go to school for design or anything like that, just the general business aspect, but he really enjoys what he's doing. And so I heard you mention brothers. How many brothers do you have? I have two older brothers. You're the baby of the family. I am. Awesome. I'm the baby of the family too. And there's privileges with that. Yes. <laughs> yes. My brothers will never let me forget that. Yeah. <laughs> well, good. All right. Let's uh, go to, I want to hear about the scope of work that you did. What is Rural Development Initiatives all about? What's their role? So RDI is a nonprofit organization and they do um, work in rural communities. And I think that they establish rural communities being 30,000 people or less. And so they do work in Idaho, Washington, Oregon, and even parts of Northern California. Um, their work really focuses around economic vitality programs as well as leadership development that they offer. Um, so their office is based in Eugene, but many of the employees are actually working all over the Pacific Northwest. And uh, economic vitality programs, what does that mean? What did they do? So they did a lot of business retention and expansion programs where they kind of went in and would work with some businesses and see areas of growth for them, areas where they maybe the business was not doing so well. So they're trying to help them um, continue on. Those programs I was less involved with, but I did a lot of assisting with their leadership program, which was actually kind of similar to the LES program I'm in now. It was a six month program and they would recruit, they would go into specific communities. And so you would have community members be participants of the program and they would learn things such as conflict resolution, different personality styles and how to work with them. And then at the end of the program, the group would pick a community project. And so this ranged from little free libraries to building benches in the park, but a way for them to kind of showcase the work that they had been doing, but also help their community out because the foundation of of the rural community leadership programs was that they felt like for the rural communities to thrive, they needed to really work within the leaders they had there and grow them. And it wasn't just the, the city council that could help or the small business owners, it was every single community member and the leadership abilities that they had. I'm just writing some notes because I think that's really important. You said they work within with the leaders of the communities where they're trying to create some sort of economic expansion or retention or vitality, correct? Mm-hmm. What did you learn from that experience? 
I learned a lot there. Um, it was interesting kind of being in the on the back end of things because I worked in the office, so I wasn't boots on the ground in the rural communities, but I got to see the work that they were doing and um, spend a lot of time talking to, our, to my coworkers, the folks that were leading those classes. But a big thing that I learned was just that rural communities and what they need to thrive isn't all that different from any other community. And so um, the aspects that it takes for a community to do well and work together, it's just, it's having leaders within your community that have the best interest at heart, a focus on small business and the continuation of their retention and expansion, and um, just creating a community that not only entices people to come play, but also to live and to work. You know, when you say rural communities, being a Texas boy growing up in a small town in Texas, my mind goes to people that are farming, people that are growing crops, people that have a lot of land, mm -hmm. people that have a different, I mean, business is business, economics is economics, math, mathematics is mathematics, two plus two equals four. You know, those types of business concepts don't change but culturally it can be very, very different, a rural community as opposed to a city, as you know. What did you learn from that experience? This is, I find this very compelling. This is why I'm asking. I know it's not on the list, but as this conversation is unfolding, what did you learn about the cultural challenges of going into a rural community with the organization? What did they learn? You know, I think what I learned was just how drastically different they can be. I mean, um, the folks that live in Sisters are going to want completely different things than the folks that live in Oak Ridge. And so when you go in, you really have to just be vulnerable. And I mean, you lead with asking questions rather than assuming what the community wants. And so I think that that was the biggest aspect that I learned was just how different certain places can be, even if they have the same population of people and maybe on paper they look the same. But like you said, it's it's a cultural aspect. And so, and that community has been along for a long time. And so the, the things that are important to them can be completely different than what are important to another small town. What was the geographical range of service uh, the rural development initiatives provided uh, service to? So we, um, my time there, we were expand, we did a lot of work within Oregon and then Washington, um, but we were also expanding to Idaho and then even some communities in Northern California. Why, why that job? Why that job out of college? What interested you in the work? Well, actually, it was because of a family friend. She was and still is the executive director there. And she knew that I was going to school for business and nonprofit administration. And she had um, talked to me and said, you know, we have we need someone part time. And um, I don't know why you wouldn't want to come work here. It'd be a great opportunity for you to learn. And I said, yeah, absolutely. And so I started just as a temporary um, part-time employee and then ended up staying on for five years and working full-time. I graduated and then spent a week not doing anything and then 
um, was kind of full force, went full time into that job. So what did you enjoy about that works environment, that work situation the most? The biggest thing was um, I knew I wanted a job that no day was like the one before. And so that was really what I liked most about working there. And just it was it was a place that I really had no experience in the sense of I lived in Eugene my entire life. So I I had no sense of what a rural community was like or how they were run. And so I think going into a job with within a place of learning was it was kind of cool for me because it would have it would never have been a job that I would gotten it otherwise and gone into, but I ended up learning a lot. What did you discover about yourself in that role? I mean, you grew up in Eugene and here you are doing something you never thought you would. What did you discover? You know, honestly, I think I learned a sense of confidence that I didn't think I had. Um, like I said, this was my first full-time career job. Um, one which I really had no background in. and But by the end of it, I was constantly thinking of different ways for which processes could become more efficient and thinking strategically about programs and fundraising within our organization. Um, so that was really cool for me. And, you know, I kind of went into that just being a fly on the wall and wanting to learn from everyone. And then I left being someone that wasn't afraid to speak up. Being a fly on the wall. <laughs> you know, being a fly on the wall is also part of our leadership journey sometimes. Sometimes we have to sit and listen. We have to sit and observe. We have to sit and ingest and digest the things that are taking place in an organization to get enough uh, capacity to begin to make good decisions. And so I think it's sort of very, a real good discipline in you and a sense of awareness of where you were, yes, you needed to get more confidence. Yes, you had grown up here all your life. That's also part of your leadership journey. But you being able to look back and say, I was a fly on the wall, but man, when it was over, I was in it. My mind was different. I was thinking different. I was performing differently. And you had become this completely different person. Do you remember any of the feedback you were given within that five years from either coworkers or superiors or people you worked with about how you had changed? Yes. I mean, they would say, I think some very similar things is that I just came in so quiet and by the end of it, they had gotten to know my true personality and they were surprised by it. And so they were just really, they really enjoyed seeing me grow. I mean, it was a very pivotal time in my life. I was young. I just got out of college. I mean, they, they saw me get married. They saw me graduate. So um, yeah, they would say something very similar as to I kind of gained a sense of confidence. Now, what did you learn about applying your education and passions to this, this area of endeavor as you began to put yourself, the picture of yourself together, as you were beginning to think strategically, as you said, how did everything begin to come to life for you? Yeah, well, I started um, RDI kind of right when I was in the thick of going to school. And so I had really just started my minor in nonprofit, and it was just such a 
humbling and great experience to be able to go to school each day, learn about these things, about grants, fundraising, the aspects of a nonprofit, and then go straight to work where I was getting to see it happen with my own eyes. And so it was such a unique way of learning that I wouldn't trade for anything. Um, so that was really cool about it. And that's kind of how I got to apply my education. And I really just, I can't imagine not doing it that way. What have your parents said to you at this point in your developmental journey of, because I'm sure they're looking at, man, she was so shy. Yeah. And you become this budding professional. What have, what have they said about that? They would probably tell me to, to quit talking so much now. Just kidding. No, they, um, I think that they've just, they really knew me in a different sense than other people did. So I'm not even sure that they would say that I was always so quiet. Um, but I think my dad, especially has always just seen me in a leadership role. He's always said to me, like, well, you need to be a leader. When I played soccer in high school, we need to be a leader when I would do anything. And so that's kind of all always how he's seen me. And I really didn't see myself in that sense until recently. So. So at the end of five years, the rural development initiatives initiative, your scope of work there, you're aware you're thinking more strategically. You've been able to apply your education. Why the transition? What had become different about you and that you were ready to expand your horizons? You know, when I went into that job, like I said, it was really just a part-time temporary position. And then I, I kind of grew within that organization. There was a lot of people that left. And so I got to take, take on their work, but I got to a point where the position I had was just, it really couldn't grow anymore. And I could feel that the people that I was working with could see that. And so um, I actually had some folks that told me that um, they could see bigger things for me. And so I never wanted to disappoint anyone, but I, you know, I was at a point in my life where I just felt like a new opportunity was needed. And so that's kind of where I found the Chamber of Commerce and it was really a position that I knew would bring me out of my shell and wasn't in my comfort zone again, but I knew how much I had learned and gained from the opportunity at RDI. And so I was really excited about it. I think that's really important, Danny. I appreciate that comment, that observation for those that are in leadership positions. There's that awareness, there's that discernment, there's the acute uh, awareness that this really can't go anywhere. I've used my abilities to the best of my ability, and now it's time to consider what might be next. That takes a lot of courage. That takes a lot of determination. That takes a lot of self-awareness. And I think that's it's a compelling description of who you are internally and who you were as a child, who you were as a teenager with all your responsibilities, with your family business at the school. This may have been dormant a little bit, but now here it is coming into coming to life into full view for you. Did you feel, did you feel different? Did you feel more courageous? Did you, what did, what did that feel like for you to get that revelation that 
it's time to do something different. Well, it's funny that you ask if I felt courageous because actually I would kind of pinpoint as that being one of the most vulnerable points in my career so far. I mean, like I said, it was a family friend who had given me that opportunity. So then to have to go to her and tell her I was leaving was, um, it was scary. And so I did feel like I had to be brave and I had to take a step and advocate for myself and so after, after I did it and when I started my new opportunity, that's when it did feel like I was kind of a new person and this was a new step in my life. But when I was going through it, it was definitely a vulnerable moment for me. And that's the other piece of that, which I appreciate you making mention of, <clears throat> excuse me, because leadership has all those vulnerable moments. It has those intimidating moments. It has those scary moments uh, because we don't want people to think we're ungrateful or we're unthankful or we're unappreciative, but there is that growing knowing, if you will, awareness that this, this thing out there in front of me, whatever it is, I don't know what it is, but it's calling to me. And I know that I have to go towards it or go after it for it to come to fruition. So thank you for bringing up those points. You know, I, I want to just add quickly, you know, when I left, full-time ministry after seven years, I was just aware that the best for my life was had still had to come to pass. And so I went back into HVAC as an operations manager. And after two years, I was just aware that I had done what I could do. It was time to make that, that change, made that change. Yes, it's scary. Yes, it's vulnerable. Yes, you, you want to do the right thing for the right reason. And so I'm just agreeing with you, Danny. I'm agreeing with those that will listen to the leaders that want to listen to the new leaders or people coming in their new leadership roles. That's part of the journey. Suck it up. Be courageous. Walk into the deep and you'll find that you will be able to swim. So job well done. What did your parents think about that shift in your life? I think they were just as ready for it as I was. Um, they knew that I wasn't going to be the type that went into my first job and was going to stay there forever. They knew that I needed to keep growing and keep learning. So they were really happy for me. What's your husband think? He was, well, I got, I just got to the point where I felt a little complacent. And so he could see that something had changed within me and I wasn't as excited about what I was doing each day. And so he was, I think, pretty thankful that I kind of had that spark back in me when I got my new position. It's important as leaders that we listen to those that love us the most and are most concerned for us because they can tell. They can tell when we're off and they can tell that it's, they'll help push us a little bit, right? Mm -hmm. To take that next step. Now, you have mentioned your volunteer work at Churchill High School with the Kids Helping Kids program. Mm -hmm. And then in your ongoing leadership experience, you mentioned this was your area of volunteering as a young teenager. And then your ongoing leadership roles and development within Kids Helping Kids at uh, Churchill High School benefiting the Children's Miracle Network. Let's take a few minutes. I really want to talk about this with you. 
I want to talk about the scope of work. How in the heck did a bunch of kids raise $35,000? What did you have to do? And, you know, how does this group function under other youth leaders? Mm -hmm. Well, it was such a wonderful experience that I got to go through as a high school student. Um, I was chosen as a freshman, so each grade there's two people chosen and you come in essentially as a freshman and then you're with that program until you're a senior. So I made essentially a four-year commitment as a freshman in high school, which is, it's kind of a big deal in the sense that you grow so much in that time and so much happens that that's really a big commitment to make. But um, I knew I just loved the program and it was interesting to me. At that time, it was being advised by Cindy Wilgus and Deb Vibora, who are two of the most wonderful women I've ever met. Um, they had been there for a long time and it was just a really fun experience. And so as a freshman, you kind of go in and you're given some minimal responsibilities, making posters, doing the marketing, that type of thing. And then each year you gain more responsibilities and more skills. And um, by the by your senior year, you are essentially leading a team of six coordinators um, and then 10. At the time, it was senior boys. Now it's just 10 seniors that are chosen. And so you are pretty much laying out a framework for the entire year. We start as coordinators planning in September, and then the pageant is usually held in March or April. So you're planning with your coordinating team, and then you get your contestants and your fundraising from January to April. And so we do things such as letter writing, which essentially is an appeal letter for the nonprofit world. That's kind of like a year end donation request. Um, we host events. And so we do like basketball tournaments for the high school students or a bunco night, which is a dice game. Um, and then we do a bunch of flyer fundraisers with restaurants in our area. So we do a Hawaiian time or Japala's or Jalisco's. And then by the end of it, you have your pageant night. And that's essentially um, a play on what a pageant would be. And so you have these contestants that do an opening dance and they have a skit. And we do a parent segment, which is kind of like a play on a dating game. And we usually fill the Churchill Auditorium. So that's about, but I think that holds three to 600 people. And um, so by the end of the night, yeah, we normally raise thirty to $35,000 in the scope of that time. Well, that was a good explanation, but I want some more details. I want some more details because this, I know for a fact that that was a very serious leadership developmental season of your life. Let's talk a little bit about how the ladies you mentioned mentored all of you, the type of training you received, and how they helped you learn to communicate the message. You know, and the interesting part about that, and I think the most beneficial aspect was that they really let us do a lot of it on our own. And so they really led in the sense that they trusted us and gave us a lot of responsibility. They were there to put in their ideas, their suggestions, their comments, 
and guide us, but they really let us take on the responsibility and said, hey, this is your event. And so, um, I mean, this is essentially your baby for four years of your life. And it's, it's, it's on you that if, if we do something wrong or if we can't plan something. And so the responsibility aspect of it was huge, especially as a freshman in high school, a sophomore in high school given that response responsibility is, is pretty different than a lot of high school students would receive. And so they just led in such a great way of, of really letting us shine in the way that they could see our skill sets working. Now, how did you ascend to the position that you held your senior year? Well, um, part of that is actually um, getting into some of my mentors, Deb Vabor and Cindy Wilgus being two of them, but Alexa Sharps, who is the director of development for the Peace Health Sacred Heart Medical Center Foundation, which is where the money goes, um, the Children's Miracle Network. And so she was a big part of that. And being in the Kids Helping Kids program, I got to see how much I loved Children's Miracle Network. We actually get to tour the um, NICU each year. So, um, and I didn't get to do that until my senior year of high school, but being able to see these two pound babies and knowing that the money that you're raising is going towards um, equipment that could save their life, that's, is pretty humbling. And so, um, I knew that I just wanted to keep volunteering with them. And so after my involvement in high school, I would actually ask Alexa if I could go to other things. And so she would let me shadow her at the annual golf tournament and I would go volunteer for the luncheon at Tiffany's each year. Um, so she really helped guide me. And um, she always jokes that she would never let me stop volunteering with Children's Miracle Network. She keeps bringing me back in, but it's because of the wonderful work that they do. So I really just kept in touch with Deb and Cindy at Churchill, and I would help each year at the high school level with whatever they needed. And they got to a point where they had been there for over 20 years advising, and they said, hey, we're thinking of leaving. Um, we would love to hand it over to you if you would take it. And that was my dream. And so I said, absolutely. So it's actually me and then my mom are the two advisors for that program. And so for those that are listening that may not know, NICU, N-I-C-U, stands for Neonatal Intensive Care Unit. What was that like for you? <clears throat> Sorry. I had a child that spent a lot of time in the NICU, so just the memories came rushing back there for a second. What was that like for you, being at such a young age, to go into the NICU for the first time and see the sights that you saw? You know, it's interesting because I think I've been probably seven times now, and it hits me the same every single time because it's new families that you're meeting, new stories that you're hearing, and there's not one that's less important than the other. And even the families that lost a child have came to us and said, we are so thankful for the work that you're doing. We got to even spend one day with our kid that we probably wouldn't have otherwise. And I think it's just an eye-opening experience, especially at that age, being a senior in high school, 
you live your life and do you think that the struggles are only the ones that you've dealt with? And then you, you go to this place where you see these families dealing with these crazy things and it's very humbling and just eye-opening and showing that no matter what's going on in your life, there's someone at that moment that's dealing with a lot more. And so to be able to, to work and volunteer to help in, in even a small way, I just knew that I would want to continue, continue to do that for the rest of my life. How did, how did your leaders prepare you for what you might see? and then help you process of those experiences. Yeah, Alexa does such a great job. She leads um, every high school that's involved in the Kids Helping Kids program. She leads them through the hospital tours every year and she does a really great job of kind of preparing you. I don't think you can ever prepare someone for what they're about to see and each year it's different um, depending on the kids that are in there at that very moment, but she does a really great job of just letting everyone know that it's a vulnerable time for us all and it's going to affect us differently. And then um, the nurses and the surgeons there at Riverbend actually have come and talked to us too. And so they really do a wonderful job as well, kind of walking us through that and letting us know what they hear from the families, how thankful they are and um, talking to us at that time, kids and the high school kids now. So that's really impactful as well, getting to hear from these doctors that are saying, thank you high schoolers for the work that you're doing. What are some of the, do you remember any of the special equipment or projects that you raised money for for that? Yeah, so we, um, I mean, all the money that's raised, Kids Helping Kids program is actually Children's Miracle Network's biggest fundraiser each year. So depending on any given year, there could be 14 high schools that are participating and um, it can raise close to a million dollars each year. So that alone is a big part of Children's Miracle Network and how they're able to um, purchase equipment, but the isolates that they, that the preemie babies are in, um, gosh, I can't remember off the top of my head, but they're over, $40,000 for one. And you can have, I mean, you can have seven kids in there at a time. And um, we've gotten to see throughout the years, the new equipment, because I've been involved for 10 years now. And so things like uh, essentially a big webcam that they can roll around to each room so that if a, they don't have that specialized doctor in the hospital, they can web them in from a different location. And so things like that, that you would never even think of, but even like um, breast milk for the kids, that stuff is really expensive. And um, so for Jones Miracle Network to be able to um, purchase that and take that headache from the family that's having to worry about so much already is it's little things like that, that are, that are impactful. And a lot of people just think about those big um, money purchases, but even the diapers and the breast milk and things like that are, we hear from people that those are actually what makes such a big difference too. So we have a pandemic going on. Kids are not in school. As, as you and your mom lead Kids Helping Kids at Churchill High School, 
how are you managing these current challenges to continue to be successful helping raising money for this program for Children Miracle Network? Yeah, I'm not going to lie. It is hard, um, especially last year. Like I said, we start planning in September. So we had started fundraising. We had all of our contestants chosen. We had raised, I think at that point, $7,000 and we had everything else planned for the rest of the year. We had our pageant scheduled. And so then to have to tell these kids, these two senior girls that have just spent four years of their lives dedicating to this program, tell them that they can't have their last big hurrah was really, really difficult. And um, thankfully we had a great group of kids. We have a great group of coordinators. And so they found creative ways to do fundraising. Um, kids these days in their social media they were doing donation bingos on Instagram and they would pick people's bottles up for their bottle drive. And so we found different ways around it, but it's been different and it is hard because we lack that personal connection. We're having to zoom with our coordinators and we don't know how they're doing. These are high school students that don't get to hang out with their friends. They don't get to see their teachers in person. And so it's been difficult lacking that personal connection, my mom and I not being able to see them in person and really see how they're doing. I gave you 60 seconds to plug Kids Helping Kids and the Children's Miracle Network. Why does the community need to support these children, high school students, when I say children, that you're helping lead for this fundraising effort? Well, not only is it just such a great program for the kids that are involved in volunteering, but um, something that Alexa has always told me and that I've heard from the families um, that we've been able to meet, some of which were actually contestants of the Kids Helping Kids program, is that you never know who this can impact, and it could be yourself one day. And so that's been one of the most um, that's resonated with me the most is this potentially one day could be my child that I would hope that a whole community was standing behind. Well, I've been one of those parents and you're absolutely correct. Uh, you need all the support that you can muster because you're trying to emotionally, psychologically survive the moment with your uh, child that's in the neonatal intensive care unit. And it's, it's, um, it's, it's very demanding, that, that's, the, that's for sure. Now, I'm so touched by your story, I'm really trying hard not to cry right now. Um, <laughs> now, this community involvement, was this modeled in your family when you were growing up? Is this something you all did together? What are some of the things you may have seen with your parents their areas of service, their areas of participation, or your, do, do your brothers, did you do it as a family? Do, do they participate in these kinds of things? Yeah, so community has just always been a part of my family just because we've kind of lived in our communities our entire lives. Like I said, my grandfather owned a business in Springfield and my mom grew up there. And then the only other town she's lived in is, is Eugene. And so when you live in a place for that long, you kind of just feel a little bit of responsibility towards that community. So in that sense, community involvement has kind of always been modeled. Um, but my mom also was a volunteer for CASA. And so going into high school and given the opportunity for Children's Miracle Network to help kids 
was cool for me because I saw how impacted she was by that work, getting to help families in the community. And so being given that opportunity myself was, I knew I had to jump on it. CASA, for those that are listening, stands for Court Appointed Special Advocate. And CASAs go into children who need representation in difficult situations in the courtroom and with uh, the legal system. Now, what your mother's service to CASA, how did that impact you? What did you learn about community service and those experiences that you observed her participating in? Yeah, I was actually pretty young when she did that work with CASA. And so only snippets of that really resonate with me. But I just, I mean, my mom is such a caring person. And so um, I know that that work was hard for her in the sense that she felt such a big responsibility to the people that she was helping. And, but even with how caring she is and how difficult that aspect was for her, the fact that she continued on just showed me that um, how it was impacting her and um, how rewarding she felt because of it. And so that kind of lit a light in me that I wanted to do some community service work. And um, it was really just by chance that I was given the opportunity in high school. And so um, it just worked out the way that it did. But yeah, she really loved the work that she did with CASA. You said that you were only two students were chosen mm-hmm. for the Kids Helping Kids program. What was that process like? How many, what, what were they looking for? How many kids applied? I don't remember my year, how many girls applied. I don't think they even told us, um, but it was much like a job interview. So we submitted essentially a kind of resume of sorts and we had to fill out an application, answer some questions. And then we went in to interview with the six other coordinators that there were at that time with Deb and Cindy. And so, um, and and then I got to be on the other side of that once I was a coordinator. So years going forward, we, we would pick the two freshmen and more than anything, especially at that age, because you're learning so much and all of those things can be taught, but what can't be taught is um, people and what they really want in something. And so going into that program, what me and my counter coordinator wanted more than anything was just to make an impact on the community. So we look for that in coordinators more than we look for anything else, just their dedication to the organization itself rather than what you're going to learn or rather how it's going to look on your resume or how it's going to look on your college applications, but just your dedication to the overall organization. I really like that component. You know what you're searching for, you know what you're looking for, and it's not necessarily all the, for the lack of a better word, pizzazz on paperwork or maybe even the more dynamic personality. It's that be, it's having the awareness of you're looking for the ones who really want to make a commitment to bring change, to bring service, and to make an impact. And I think that's critical in this conversation, especially for women in leadership, young ladies going into uh, potential leadership positions that people do know what they're looking for. And it's important that the applicant knows what they're looking for too, correct? Yes. Okay, let me see here. Now, 
off the, just change the theme a little bit. Are you a country girl? You know, it's funny you say that. Um, country may be a bit of a stretch. We're only one mile outside of city limits. Okay. But to me, it's country because we have um, an acre of land. And now that my parents moved next door, we actually kind of got another acre for free almost. So, but my husband grew up out on Crow Road mm -hmm. and they would raise the beef that they would eat. And so he's got much more merit to the country title than I do. But um, yeah, we love where we live. I like that we're close to the city, but also it's quiet out here and we've got no one behind us. Um, so it's just kind of a nice marriage between the two city and country. The reason why I asked you that question is because, you know, there's something about knowing who you are, that we should know who we are, especially as leaders, we should know what it takes to find rest, what it takes to find restoration, what it takes to find a measure of contentment and peace. And I remember some of your posts on Facebook where you're in the backyard, if you will, in the picture, and you're, you're got your coffee, tea, you're doing your thing. And you're just that complete relaxed mode. You're being highly effective, getting everything done you've been hired to do in this natural setting of this big old backyard. And I've always found that compelling that that you know, you know who you are and you know what you need and you have done something about it so that you can be the kind of person that has value to others. How important is that, do you think, for other leaders to make that same kind of commitment to themselves? I think it's incredibly important. And, um, you know, I've kind of always known who I was in a sense and what I liked and what I didn't like and the things that made me comfortable and uncomfortable. But in a sense of, did I ever think that I would live out in the country? Absolutely not. But I did know that I loved this part of Eugene. Um, my house that I grew up in is only about two miles away from us. And so when we were looking for a house, I knew that I had to be in this area. Um, so I think, I think it's a good compliment of you need to know what you like, but also push yourself to maybe what would make you uncomfortable and you'll kind of find something that you never even knew was there. Now, I know that area. Uh, I lived out in Lorraine before, and I know where Crow Road is, and that is an absolutely stunning, stunning area to live. And I'm happy your parents have moved out there with you because that, that's, that has to be a joy in mm -hmm. and of itself. Now, you golf. I didn't see that coming. <laughs> I didn't see coming that you like golf. What is it about golf that has captured your attention, you and your husband's attention, and it's become a new passion for you? Well, I'll tell you, I didn't see that coming either. Um, I actually took golf lessons as a child and then never once did anything with it. Um, my dad's kind of always been just one that would golf for fun, and my brothers both like to golf, but... With the pandemic, golfing was one of the only things that you could do. And so my husband really got into it and he was doing it so much that it was, I either got to 
join him or I didn't get to see him as often. So I started golfing and I mean, one aspect of it is just the courses that we have here. I mean, they just really showcase what's so beautiful about Oregon and the place that we live and it's quiet. And so what better way to enjoy a Saturday than to be outside in the quiet and the challenge of golf is also appealing. You can go out and do decent one day and then the next weekend you go out and you're terrible. So I think just kind of striving for to be good at something is always a little compelling. I've heard that about people that play golf, that some positive things that increases their vision, their focus, their attention to detail, their almost razor-like vision. And then the other side of it, uh, the part of when it doesn't go well, <laughs> how you, you could respond. What have you learned? And this is important, this is a sincere question. What have you learned about yourself now that you started playing golf? I have learned that I am a very competitive person, even in a really non-competitive sport. <laughs> Because even though my husband's been golfing more than I have, um, I still go out there and want to do just as well as him. And when I don't, that can be very frustrating. And for those who play golf, know that if you're frustrated, you're most likely not going to be good. So if you go out in the first hole and you don't do well and you've got 17 holes left, that's not a very good mindset <laughs> to be in. <laughs> Who told you golf wasn't competitive? I've never heard that golf was competitive. <laughs> I think I just assumed that it was just a relaxing way to spend um, a Saturday playing a sport that many can play. You don't have to be um, really athletic, which I think is also fun about it too, because now we're able to go with um, my dad and we've even gotten my mom involved, so. Um. Tell me about, I want to know more about some of the mentors in your life that don't have anything to do with kids first, kids helping kids, excuse me. Tell me more about some of the other mentors along the way that have had a dramatic impact in your life. Well, I did have some um, great teachers throughout my years at Churchill, uh, even more so then my years in college, I felt the teachers that I had, I made great relationships with and um, being on the other side and not teaching because I'm not a teacher, but getting to work with high school students, I just have just a vast amount of respect for teachers and what they do because I know that it's not easy. And so knowing that I made those relationships with those teachers and they really cared and they had however many other kids that they were teaching as well year after year, but continued to stay involved. And um, there was a teacher that I even reached out to when I was taking math classes at the University of Oregon. He was my math teacher and he was willing to help me through that too. And so just their dedication to their students. And it's really, it's just, it's really humbling and it's really great to see how much they care. And it's a really selfless job, I think. What are some of the models you learned from them or the principles or practices you've learned from them that you have tried to replicate as a mentor yourself now? Patience is one. 
Um, you have to be very patient with high school students, especially they, and it's very interesting because I think I would hope that I, as a high school student was the type that, like I said, I was pretty quiet. And so I like to kind of just sit and listen and really learn from teachers. And I know I probably caused some chaos every now and then too, but um, seeing how high schoolers are now, man, they have this sense of confidence that I did not have when I was their age. And so the way that they're willing to talk and um, when they're not called on and say the things that they do, it's you really have to be patient. You kind of have to put yourself in their shoes and um, see that this is a benefit to them as well. And it's not just it's not just a benefit to you. And so even though that this program and this organization means so much to me, it means just as much to them as well. And so we kind of have to play with that. We're both gonna get something out of it and we kind of have to get to each other's level a little bit. But patience, I think is one of the biggest things that I learned from them that now I have to now replicate in my mentoring. Now you, you come from a family of business owners. You come from a family of leaders. What did you learn from all of these tremendous examples you've had about leadership itself? Yeah, it's funny because I don't think I really realized that I was learning until now. Being in leadership positions and working in the business world. Um, but now looking back on it and having a couple jobs under my belt. There are two really big things that I've learned from my dad being a business owner that I think that I will take with me throughout my entire career journey. One of which is that no person is too high up in the company to load the paper machine. And that's both metaphorically and quite literally um, because my dad's always shown that he'll do whatever it takes to make a, his company succeed, even if it's the little things that are really necessary to keep the wheels turning, but maybe not as glorifying as what one thinks a business owner should be doing. And the second is that your employees and those that you are leading are your biggest asset. And so spending the time on them um, is really important and he'll always put them before himself. So I think that those two aspects that I've learned from him, I will take with me wherever I go. Did your father or your mother ever talk about the lessons they learned from their parents in business? Not really. I think it was it was very different because when my grandpa owned um, the business, it was much smaller than it is now. So my dad's grown it quite a bit. So I think the struggles um, were just different in what that in what they were doing. But I think that my dad is very similar to his father and they probably lead in a very similar way. They're both really hardworking. Um, so like I said, my dad, even now after owning the business for over 25 years, he'll work on a Saturday. He'll work in the shop with his other workers. There's nothing that he won't do to make the company succeed. And I think that he learned that from his father as well. How has like these experiences you've, you've observed, I mean, these are very powerful principles you learned from your father and I'm sure from your mother as well. How have they shaped you? They've shaped me a lot more than I even realized. And I'm sure 
throughout the years, I'll kind of continue to learn maybe aspects of myself that I learned from my parents and grandparents and that I maybe didn't know within my career and my leadership journey, but just seeing them own small businesses and their communities kind of, like I said, gave them a purpose and a responsibility to the community that they were living in. And so that's really shaped me in the sense that I feel like I need to give back to the community that I'm living in. And being a small business owner, what happens in your community really affects you in one way or another. And so to be able to give back and just know what's going on is really important. In what ways did you see, are you aware that your parents gave back or their families before them gave back to communities that uh, you can recall? Um, one recent was my dad helped with the uh, Springfield High School's marketplace. And so they um, did some cabinets for that. And he had, I believe he had students there He's always looking for ways to get, um, each year he has the U of O come and teach a class at his work. And so he's looking at ways to get involved that way. And he loves to teach people. And so anytime that um, kids can come to him, my brothers used to be in Boy Scouts. And so my dad would lead them in making their race car things and having their um, competitions and those those parts are some of the most enjoyable moments, I believe, for him, where he can teach a trade that he knows to someone else and find um, kind of the joy in them. And so that means a lot for him. And I think that's why it's so great having my husband work there and see that it gives um, it gives my dad a lot of joy to be able to pass that knowledge on to someone else. Yeah, I was in Boy Scouts and Cub Scouts as a child, and I was a Cub Master and a Scout Master, and, and scouting is, it's a great program. And I remember not being, my father had died the previous year, I was so I was eight at this point, and trying to carve my own, the little kit they give you to carve your little car for the race cars. Yeah. And, and sitting there trying to figure out, not really knowing how to do it, and our mom was there trying to help us, and... And I remember that they released the cars and mine got stuck going, oh, no. going down. And so, you know, obviously <laughs> I was embarrassed and all, but, you know, what do you do? It's part of the journey. Yeah. Now, <clears throat> you've said in your bio and you've said to me more than once that you're just now entering your leadership journey. And I want to know why you're saying that, why you believe that you're just now entering it. Well, like I said earlier, I really like to be the fly on the wall. Um, my type of learning is to sit back and listen and learn from others. And so I could do that for a long time. So I feel like I've spent a good amount of a good amount of time being able to do that, starting with Deb and Cindy within the work um, focused around Children's Miracle Network and Alexa Sharps getting to shadow her and then going to RDI and really getting to see um, the different levels within that organization and the people leading there. And so I feel like I've just been in this space of learning and even this past year and a half working at the chamber, you know, I've gotten to learn the work that we're doing and get to see Vonnie lead and all my other coworkers lead. Um, it's been a great place to be able to 
not sit back completely because I've been doing work too, but to be able to learn from them. And so, and Bonnie's a great leader in the sense that she's always pushing us and wanting us to, to step out of our comfort zone too. So I really, I feel like this is a good a good start for me. And, uh, and I know that, yes, I've had some leadership positions already and opportunities, but just something that feels different about this time in my life. And I think it's, it's the start of something. So I'm excited. Well, I didn't want to make any assumptions. I didn't want to imply. So forgive me if it seems like that, that I'm implying that you have a uh, diminished uh, mindset about yourself because I don't believe. No, not at all. But I wanted to hear what you answered. You know that you're in a new season. You know that you're in a new growth phase and that you're observing, you're paying attention. Yes, you're working hard. Yes, you're involved. But you're well aware that this is the beginning of something new and different and it's going to have great uh, results for you. In your time, you've been at the Chamber of Commerce a year and a half. Specifically, some specifics. How have you grown? How have you changed? Yeah, it's really hard to put into words the amount of growth that I've felt in such a short amount of time that I've been at the Chamber. But I just wake up every morning knowing how lucky I am to be able to learn from the leaders that I get to see on a daily basis. It's not only Vani, who's an incredible leader within herself, but it's people like you and every single board member we have to be able to learn from them every single day and have such a diverse group of leaders that you're learning from is it's invaluable. It's, it's just, it's, yeah, it's extraordinary. What have you discovered about yourself? Cause you are a leader. There's no doubt you have a leadership role at the chamber in this time of pandemic. What have you learned about your ability to be effective at your job in the chamber to its members within the realm of your areas of responsibility? As much as this word has been overused this past year, I think that my ability to pivot has been an area that's kind of shocked me even. I'm the type of person, person that um, change is kind of frightens me normally. Um, and so, but within this role in the past year that we've had, the ability to change in a moment's notice has become second nature, I think to all of us at the chamber and to many in the community, even everyone dealing with the aspects of the pandemic. And so that's really, I think I've grown in that way in a short amount of time because of what's happened more than I would have normally in a single year. But being able to think proactively about what it is that businesses and community members may need in the months ahead, rather than being reactive to everything that's going on has also been an area where I think I've grown in the past year because of the implications of the pandemic. Well, the word pivot, it may seem like it's being overused as, as far as terminology goes, but in all functional capacities, it's underused because there's a lot of people that are not learning how to pivot right now. And those that aren't able to successfully pivot are the ones that are not able to successfully move ahead at this time. So it it's, uh, might be an overused term, but it, with, re with regards to functional response uh, responses, pivoting has, has not been used enough. And I want to just I want to say that, you know, you you had a real pivotal role in my business 
with what I'm doing, and I want to I want to say this to honor you and recognize your leadership, because when you when the chamber started this taking your business online course, I was struggling emotionally. I was struggling with demands of running a new business in this pandemic. I was trying to pivot correctly. I, I understood that I was starting to fall behind a little bit with all this new technology. Uh, I, I couldn't seem to master fast enough. And after going to the first uh, Take Your Business Online class, I was so overwhelmed with what I couldn't do well. And I was so overwhelmed with what I felt like I didn't know how to how to respond correctly that I was starting to give up on myself honestly and you there was a grant made available to the chamber for small businesses from the city of Springfield managed through the chamber $500 small business grant and I was just ready to walk away from the whole moment because I didn't feel like I could successfully pivot anymore and you stayed with me and you kept emailing and you kept contacting me about this opportunity this grant how it could help me and I was and I remember saying well I was starting to hem and haw a little bit that's the Texas expression hem and haw <laughs> and you were so gracious and you were so persistent and you you answered all my emails you answered my phone calls you let me court, uh, schedule phone calls with you you answered all my text messages that I was able to regain my footing and a sense of self-confidence that I was able to apply for that money. I got much needed media uh, support uh, for my business that's helped me really take it to the next level. And when the pandemic ends, I have resources for that. But I wanted to thank you. I want to say that for everybody who's listening, that in the most critical moment for me when I felt like I wasn't sure if I could take one more step in the right direction, I was able to take one more step and more in the right direction because you were a leader and you stayed with it and you stayed with me and you stayed in that process and you kept encouraging me and you kept working with me. Even when I was texting you at eight o'clock at night, concerned about what I was doing, you kept saying, it's okay, don't worry about it. We're gonna help you get through it. And that's what leaders do. And you fill that role and you fill that gap. Thank you. I'm so glad to hear that. Well, it's I'm I'm very glad that you stuck with me because it really helped me get to this this next level of the things that I'm doing now. So, what's a good leader to you, Danny? Well, it's a, it's a funny time that you asked that because I'm in the middle of a book right now, um, Good to Great, which I know is a it's an older book by Jim Collins, but I've learned so much from it. And I think it's taken me so long. I keep saying because I just feel like I need to write down notes of everything that I'm reading. But he really, I think, pinpoints the type of leader that I want to be, which is what he calls a type five leader. And he explains it in the sense that they look out the window when giving credit to their employees and their team members. Um, and those same leaders look in the mirror at themselves when administering responsibility for the mistakes or misjudgments that they make. And so I think that this is just the perfect type of leader that I want to be, that I know that I'm being led by. Vani is this way. Um, but it's a leader that's able to see where their team members will shine, what their strengths are and weaknesses are, and lead accordingly. So 
they know where to put those people and how to lead them and to give them the responsibilities that they know that they'll be able to shine with. So um, I've been learning so much with this book and I think he really, he pinpoints it really well. What's a bad leader to you? So a bad leader, I think is kind of the, the alternative to that, um, it's one that looks internally at themselves for opportunity and growth within their own organization, and then just lacks that ability to look within their team for that same growth. So someone who can't admit when they are wrong and then doesn't have the grasp on their team, doesn't know where their team members will shine, doesn't know their strengths and their weaknesses. And so Maybe they have a team member that's not shining in an area and instead of saying, well, it's because that's your weakness. Instead, they just administer that blame upon them. Yeah, that, that's that's really important. Having the discernment, the acuity of observation, of recognizing people's skill sets, people's weaknesses. And I really thank the military for all those years I was in it where they taught us that team building, soldier team development and that cohesiveness can only come when people are properly doing their role once they're in their proper role. Mm -hmm. I read that book you're reading now about 15 years ago. It's a great book. Yeah. Why is leadership important for any organization, community, or endeavor? Well, if you've read Good to Great, then you'll um, know my answer because it's the Stockdale paradox that he talks about within the book. And I'll kind of give a little background for those who don't know. So the Stockdale paradox comes from a US military office, officer Jim Stockdale, who was a prisoner of a war camp during the Vietnam War. He was in this camp for eight years and he had no release date in sight or any indication that he would ever get out or see his family again. But Jim Stockdale never lost faith that he would get out. But he was also not the optimistic type in the sense that he was believing that each next day would be his date of release. So he, he said, and they quote this in the book, that it was the optimists that died of a broken heart because they kept thinking that they were going to get out. So the Stockdale paradox is the idea that you must retain absolute faith that you can and will prevail in the end regardless of the difficulties you face, but at the same time, you confront the most brutal facts of your current state of reality. So I think that this type of leadership that strives towards those goals each and every day, but is also aware of all of the hurdles they will have to face and prepares their team members to face those obstacles head on is the type that's gonna succeed. And that can be within your community, that can be within your organization or any type that has a leadership style, so. I appreciate you quoting the, 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 the Stockdale paradox because it's important to remember that effective leadership is not all, does not mean that you have a Pollyanna attitude every single day. You do have to confront the really hard, difficult scenarios and say, this is really hard and this is really difficult. Not sure when we're gonna come out of this, We'll come out of this, but it's going to take a lot of hard work. So thank you for bringing that up. Danny, who would you like to thank for their investment and support of you? There's so many people, and I'm sure I've forgotten many, but my family has always been my biggest support system, and they always will be. We are for each other, and that's just how we are. We're, 
Renee verse knows, <laughs> but um, Deb and Cindy, Deb Vogor and Cindy Wogus, without them, I wouldn't have, I don't, I don't know where I would be right now because I don't know where my leadership journey would have led me. And then Alexa Sharps, who really shaped me and taught me how to lead with my heart. That's how she always leads. And so um, I would just love to thank her as well. And then many of my past colleagues at RDI I learned so much from each and every one of them. And a lot of them have continued to be some of my close friends and mentors. And we always check in on each other and um, are in very different endeavors in our lives. So it's really fun to be able to meet those people along the way and then see how how they stick with you because each of those people that I've just mentioned is still a prominent part of my life and I'll continue to learn from them each and every day. So I'll give you a couple of hypotheticals. You're, you have a room full of 200 young aspiring leaders. What would you say to them about their direction, about actions to take and having proper motivations? The first thing I would say is don't be afraid to be uncomfortable because I think that those are the areas in which I've grown the most and changed the most are the times in which I felt the most uncomfortable. The instances which I maybe didn't think that I'd be able to prevail at or succeed in and I ended up going into them and doing so. So to make sure that you allow yourself to be uncomfortable in certain situations, because that's where you're going to find the most growth. And then also just to make sure that whatever you're doing, you find meaning in. So it's not about making the most money or being at the top of an organization. If you can find meaning in your work, then that's going to lead to a meaningful life. What other books would you recommend to young leaders to read outside of From Good to Great? Well, um, Brene Brown's Dare to Lead. I have not read it yet, but I have heard so many great things about it. Um, Bonnie, I believe, is reading it or has already read it. And then many of my other different mentors and people in my life have read it and said such great things. So that's the next on my list. So I would um, recommend that one, definitely. And just, she has a podcast as well. And so listening to her podcast, I've learned so much already. Yeah, I've read several of her books and listened to her podcasts and watched many of her YouTube videos. And the most compelling component of what she teaches for me is, is the empathy piece of leadership. Because everything falls when empathy is introduced. All of our hard opinions, all of our contradictions, when we take the time to have empathy towards someone else as leaders, it changes the entire course of the conversation and it changes the outcome of the engagement. Mm -hmm. So that's really important. What kind of dog do you have? What's your dog's name? I have a golden retriever. Her name is Madeline. And we actually got her last January. So right before COVID hit, um, I kind of, think it was a blessing that everything happened when it did because I started working from home when she was about three months old, which if I would have started any earlier, I think we would have both gone crazy. But at three months old, she was finally kind of getting into the swing of things and just wanted to sleep. But she's 
She's great. I love her. And she loves that my parents are next door because now she's got two acres of land to explore. What would you say to young aspiring leaders about the value of learning in positions of volunteering or volunteerism? Yeah, you know, I think a lot of people they go into volunteering without even the sense of learning um, being a reason for it. They don't even think about everything that they're going to learn. I know that when I went into my volunteer opportunity in high school, I went in a sense of wanting to make an impact on my community. I had no idea the amount of skills that I would learn and the mentors that I would get to learn from. And so I think just, I mean, like I said about finding a career that is meaningful to you, if you find meaningful work or find a passion of yours that you can volunteer. And we live in a community that has countless nonprofit organizations. So chances are, if you have a passion, there's probably a nonprofit that um, is doing work towards it. So don't be afraid, especially learning from Alexa Sharp. She will never turn down a volunteer and many organizations are that way. So maybe you're like, I don't have any qualifications or I don't know what I could give. Chances are that the person at that organization will find a space for you and you'll learn so much about yourself. Um, you'll get to learn about your community and the people that live within it because that was something I learned um, with Children's Miracle Network, too, is just the struggles that families were dealing with each and every day. And that alone is so valuable for someone young to learn is that um, whatever you think your struggles are, someone else is dealing with something much harder in that moment. And so I think that's something that's very valuable. But yeah, just put yourself out there because, I mean, someone always told me the worst they can say is no. And then you can go and ask someone else. The worst they can say is no, that's correct. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we've had with us this evening, Danielle Thompson, Economic Development Specialist with the Springfield Area Chamber of Commerce. Danielle, or to us, Danny, as we call her at the chamber, thank you for coming on Molina Leadership Solutions, uh, year-long project titled Women in Leadership Series. I have so enjoyed this and have really enjoyed hearing the other aspects of your life, your family, your development, your education, your leadership journey and process. Uh, thank you for being willing to participate. It's going gonna, it's gonna to have massive impact for uh, all those that hear it as well. And is there any final comments you'd like to make to the audience tonight? I just want to thank you for believing in me to come on. I know I told you that I didn't feel worthy of being interviewed, but you pushed me. And so, like I said earlier, something that makes you uncomfortable, um, those are the things that you need to do because you'll only grow within them. And just people like you are the reason that I love getting up and doing what I do every day. So thanks a lot, Mark. Well, thank you again for your leadership, your personal leadership to me and my business and my uh, involvement with the chamber as a chamber member not just as a board member, but as a chamber member who could benefit from the programs uh, of the ch that the chamber was offering and providing because I don't know where I would have gotten that kind of support if it would have been someone different other than you that was not in charge of that program. So thank it's you. been a real benef benefit to my, my small little company. So thank you very much. Yes.
All right. Well, you have a good night. We'll look forward to catching up with you within the next year. Okay. Thanks, Mark. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye.